I don't know if you've thought about this before in terms of a, I don't know how to put this, I'll say a cultural analysis. Uh, we are a, a privileged people here in the West. We are a privileged people. Uh, when you think about it, this is what I mean when I, when I say that. Uh, we live in the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the history of the world. I don't know if you realize that, but we do. We, we, as citizens of this nation, live in the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the history of the world. And here's the irony with that. We are also among the most anxious and depressed people in the history of the world as well. When you look at studies that are done, when you look at surveys, uh, when you talk to the experts, um, when you look at the, stati the uh, statistics, it's rather strange when you think about it. Those, those two realities set one by another. On the one hand, we are the most wealthy, powerful nation in, on the planet, the, the face of, of history, and yet at the same time so deeply racked with anxiety and, and depression. And most especially, it shows itself that younger you look in the demographics as well. A lot of different studies, a lot of different experts have weighed in and postulated as, as some as to what, what's going on there. Uh, some of it has to be social media and the, the ready access that we have to just so much information. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the tyranny of expectations and the enslavement of comparisons, FOMO, right, that, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, I'll just put it this way, the epidemic of rampant loneliness. All those things coming, coming into play, such that there is a deep, profound, inner, psychological, emotional, spiritual exhaustion. It goes a little deeper, I think, when, when you really start to, to think about this uh, than, than just the factors I, I mentioned, though they, they are in play. I think there's something else to be considered. And that is, we are an untethered people. Um, we are looking for meaning and significance and purpose and trying to come up with it on our own. So we're untethered. We're bl blown and, and tossed and trying to find roots, creating roots, creating a foundation and some fundamentals and trying to make it up whole cloth. That's exhausting. Trying to invent and to create your reason for existence will wear you out. Therein leading to a spiritual, profound exhaustion and anxiety. There is another way. And the Lord in his love and his grace is holding it forth to us even this morning. To all of us here in this room and to every human being we will ever come into contact with. Another way. If you've got a, uh, your Bibles with you, I'd, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1. As we continue in this little mini-series of asking the question about what does it mean to be a disciple through the lens of Mark's gospel, okay? So this is not a series in the book of Mark, 
This is asking a specific question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple through the lens of the gospel of Mark, okay? So we're looking now, uh, picking up where we left off just last week. We were looking at verses, especially verses uh, 14 and 15 last week. Uh, this week we're picking up where we stopped in verse 16 and reading on just a little bit into verse 20. So I'm going to start with verse 14. I know it's not on the slide, but I'm just going to start in verse 14 and then pick up at uh, where the slide has it, verses 16 and reading on to verse 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's stop there and pray together and ask for the Lord's help and blessing upon this time as we reflect on his word. Let's pray. Jesus, would you put us there, right there on that shoreline at the Sea of Galilee? Whether as one of the fishermen or perhaps a part of the crowd watching, perhaps just bystanders, just or folks out for a, a walk that day, and we are eavesdropping, and we are seeing this unfold. We are listening in as you approach these fishermen with these words, and we see their response. Would you help us to process this? Would you help us to understand? Even as we prayed at the beginning of last week's message, many of us here this morning are coming into this fresh with really a blank slate, an open page. Um, And that's a really good place to be. Needing to be informed, informed as to the the answers to the question, what does it mean to, to be a follower of Jesus? We ask that you would help us there. Some of us here uh, need to be reformed because some of us are coming in with some misconceptions and some misunderstandings, whether because of poor teaching or poor example or some combination of both. And so a lot of us here need to be not just informed but reformed. And many of us here are are okay. We're growing. Uh, We've got a a good idea of, of what these things mean. But, Lord Jesus, we need your help, lest we be conformed to the patterns of this world and the temptations of our hearts. So, whether it's inform, reform, or conform, uh, we do need your help. We need it desperately, and we have to say, even if we don't know what we're saying, we have to say we need your help more than we know. So, would you please teach us what it means to be a follower, a disciple? We ask in your name. Amen. What does it mean, let me put it this way, what sets apart, what sets apart 
loyalty to Jesus from allegiance to a fanatic? What makes them different? What sets apart loyalty to Jesus to allegiance to a fanatic? Now, think with me. Did you hear what Jesus said? Did you get a sense of the strength and the ex exclusivity of his words? Are you hearing the strength of it? Are you, seeing, are you hearing the power of it? What sets apart loyalty to Jesus from allegiance to a fanatic? Now, we're not crazy about fanatics. At least most of us are, I hope. Um, you know, you think in terms of the harm that they bring and the twisting of lives that can take place when you give yourself to the teaching and the example of a fanatic. Uh, rightly, we are not too, too crazy, too enthused when we hear fanatics. What sets Jesus apart and his call from a fanatic and their call? Now, there's different ways that we could go about exploring that question. Uh, one would be to just trace out the paths, like, well, where does this go, and where, do, where, where might that take you, and where would following him take you? And that would be a, a reasonable conversation to have, you know, one taking you to a place of harm and, and unmaking and unraveling of your life, and the other to a place of, of, of healing and flourishing and, and life as it is meant to be. Okay, that would certainly be one way, one possibly helpful way, to trace out the answer to the, that question, but I'd like to come at it from a, a different angle. And that's simply just to say this, we are all fanatics. Everybody's a fanatic. Everybody's religious. Everybody is operating. We all are. You've heard me say this before. I think it was back in the series in John's Gospel, the I Am series. I think we talked about this back some weeks ago. That we are all operating, every human being, to be human, actually part of it is to operate from a, a faith, fundamentals, faith convictions, every single one of us. It's, it's something that anthropologists in, in recent years have been speaking to, this biblical reality that every one of us are, we're all worshipers, worshipers of something or someone. You, it's an inescapable reality. As the great theologian Bob Dylan put it, you got to serve someone, right? He's right. Dylan's right. It's not a matter of what or who, or excuse me, it's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter. It's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter of what and who. Of what and who we are giving our lives towards. We are all, coming back to what I just said a second ago, we are all, in that sense, religious. We are all, in that sense, even the atheist. We are all, in that sense, fanatics. We are all, in that sense, people of faith. Okay, so back to this, this passage, then if we can come back uh, there. The message that this king, this one who's coming to these fishermen there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day, the message that he bears, we talked about this last week, is in him the kingdom has come. In him, in the coming of the king, heaven has come down here upon earth, the rule and reign of God has come with the coming of the king. The king has come. The king has come to rescue his people. 
The king has come to renew, reclaim, redeem the whole of his creation. The king has come. That is his message. That is the news. That is the gospel. We must then rightly respond to this news. Now, we talked about that last week, and we talked about how part one of the answer to what then is the right way to respond to this news is a response of repentance and belief. That's what we talked about last week. It's there in verses 14 and 15, okay? So part one of how to rightly respond to this, the news of the coming of this king, that in him the kingdom has, has come, the rule and reign of God on this earth, the part of the, the, the answer to the question is, what is the right response there is repentance and belief. That's part one. Here's part two. The king has come. The other part of the response is how to resp- in terms of hearing this news is following the king. Repentance and belief, and with that also, following the king. What it means to rightly respond to him. Now, okay, what then would that mean? What then does that mean to follow this king? Well, this is where we're going. If you got the outline, if you got the bulletin, this is where we're going over the next few minutes. Uh, breaking it down, there's a negative way to describe that and a positive way to describe that. There is a dying and there is a living, okay? Part one, the negative, the dying. Part two, the positive, the living. Let's look at this together if we can. What does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? As you look at this passage, you just look at what's described here in Mark chapter one, verses 16 and following, we see that it involves a forsaking all, a laying everything down, a giving up of of everything and leaving it behind. It could not be made any clearer than what we find here in Mark chapter 1. I mean, after all, what do we see here with these fishermen? When, when Jesus comes and we see their response, which is meant to be uh, emblematic for our own response, a pattern of our own response, how do they respond? Jesus shows in, in this that we are, part of what it means to follow him is to give up our old security, and find our security in him. Think of what the fishermen are doing here. James, John, Peter, Simon, and his brother Andrew, what are they doing? They're leaving their livelihood. They're holding those nets in their hands, the security, the familiarity, all of that. This is their livelihood. They're leaving it behind. These fishermen, please understand, are not peasants. They are not poor. If you pay attention to the details of the text, James and John are involved in a family business and they're doing so well, they have servants. They have employees. I don't know if they have a benefit package, but they have employees. Free fish, whatever. Okay? So we know that they're not poor. They're doing fine. There's nothing in the text that says that the business is failing. There's no indication of that whatsoever. And if you read in between the lines in some of the other Gospels, the other places that, that are parallel passages to this, si- uh, Peter, Simon, and Andrew seem to be self-employed fishermen, but possibly in partnership with James and John in, the family, in their family business, Zebedee Incorporated. Okay? So there's nothing here that indicates there's anything wrong with how the business is going. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, You have to leave that behind. You have to leave your security 
all that you found that made you feel, that was familiar to you and made you feel secure in this world, you have to give it over to him and find all that you had, you were looking for in those things and find them in him. In him. That's part of what it means to forsake all. There's more. Not just a new identity that you find in Jesus, excuse me, not just a new security that you find in Jesus, but a new identity that you find in Jesus. So what else do they leave behind? They leave behind their families. Now this is a much bigger deal in that culture than it is in our own today. It's a much bigger deal. Family was everything in the ancient Near East, in a Jewish culture in the ancient Near East. This is your identity, your last name. Your tribe, your family, immediate and extended. It is your identity, it is your status, it is who you are. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You need to leave that behind. To follow him is to find your security in him and him alone and your identity in him and him alone alone okay of forsaking all to follow him but there's more here not just a forsaking all but of a renouncing of self now last time we looked at how this the repentance side of this response entails a renouncing of sin that's not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about a renouncing of self now in mark's gospel there are three different occasions in which Jesus gives predictions of his death and crucifixion, or crucifixion and death, okay? Uh, there are three different occasions in which you see that later on in, in Mark's gospel, and in each one of those predictions, Jesus couples that with teaching description of what it means to follow him, the cost of discipleship, if you will, Okay? Now, in the first one of those predictions, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 8, that's where we're going. Mark 8, verses 31 through 34. This is the f there's first one of these predictions. Jesus says, this is what's coming, and this is what it's going to mean to follow me. So Mark 8, verses 31 through 34. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I stop there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? It's interesting to note that the exact same word is used later to describe Peter's denial of Jesus in the high priest's courtyard on the night of his trial. I don't know the man. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are to do the very same thing with ourselves. Not just to deny a thing, but to deny ourselves. 
to deny our self-interest, our self-reliance, our self-dependency, our self-will, our self-sufficiency. We are to deny that. That's what Jesus is saying. We're to deny ourselves, and yet more, to take up our cross. To take up the cross. This is also what is involved in following him. You want to know? Go to the source. Jesus. That's what he's saying. Deny yourself and take up your cross. What, does it mean? what did it mean for folks in that time and in that place to take up a cross? What, is that, what are those words, what does that, that imagery conjure up for them? What was a cross? A cross was a tool of terror used by the Roman Empire, taken up, they got it from the Persians. It was the most horrific form of public execution that they could come up with at the time. If they could come up, could have come up with something worse, they would have. But that was the, if I can use this word, best, best thing that they could come up with in the most shameful, painful way to put a man or a woman to death. Actually, mostly men. I don't think women were killed that way, but I'll come back to that with a little research. Um, it was a deterrent. This was a means by which the Roman Empire strove to keep in check anyone who wanted to question the wisdom of the Roman rule, to certainly to, uh, to, to quell any idea of rebellion against Roman rule, well-known, a well-known way of doing this. By this point in Roman history and in that part of the world, there had been thousands of people executed in this way, always outside of the city gates on a public road where you'd find this body hung there to die. So what does it mean? What did it mean for folks in that time to hear that to follow Jesus... You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. It means you have to be willing to be led away to your death. Maybe literally, but certainly figuratively, to be led away to your death. What is Jesus' point then? What he is saying here is that we need to follow him. Following him involves severing all ties. Laying down of all the idols regarding security and identity. Cutting all the ties, letting go of the idols, an utter surrender unto him because we are not our own, we are his. And that is partly what it means to follow him, to deny yourself and take up your cross, forsaking all and the renouncing of self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a name that is probably familiar to many of you, uh, is best remembered for his classics, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. Uh, Bonhoeffer stood against the tide as the Nazis came to power in Germany in the 1930s and, of course, in, in the 40s as, as well. Bonhoeffer, some of you may know, he, he was a pastor, an author, a professor, a theologian, a martyr. He participated uh, in an assassination plot to try and take, off, take out Adolf Hitler, and that's what cost him his life. 
Perhaps one of his best-known quotes is taken from that book, The Cost of Discipleship, and the line goes like this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, for Bonhoeffer, this was more than just talk. He lived it. He, he lived it. Again, his, his stance against the Nazis. It was certainly dangerous, but it was not a popular stance. Tragically, not among many German Christians. This was not, at the time, a popular stance, and so he got a lot of pushback. Bonhoeffer took a lot of heat from his own people, taking this stance against the Nazis. He was misunderstood and criticized all over the place. He, he took heat for leaving Berlin at one point to go to Germany to serve some German-speaking Christians there in, in London. He took heat later on from his American friends for going back to Germany to serve the German churches as it became clear what was going to happen and his desire to serve in that terrible circumstance. He then took heat a little bit later from his German friends for working with the Abwehr, that is the secret police. They did not know, his friends did not know and could not know that he was actually a double agent. Now, it wasn't that, it wasn't that Bonhoeffer didn't care what other people thought but he was willing to die to his desire to be admired and to be thought well of. If I can put it this way, even before he was martyred, he lived the life of a martyr because he was following Jesus and putting these other, letting these other desires die in following Jesus. What would this mean for you and I? Now, some of you may know that elsewhere, Jesus actually says to follow him, we have to be willing to hate our family and friends. Now, by that, he does not mean literally to have hatred in your heart towards your family, but he means it comparatively, comparatively, because love and affection of him is so high and so huge and so great that there are no, really no runners up. That's what he means. Well, okay, what would that look like for you and I? to follow Jesus in this way, to forsake all and renounce this our, ourselves. Well, let me, if I can, just try some diagnostic questions. What conditions, and you could be just thinking about becoming a Christian, or you could have been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years. You still need to ask these questions. What conditions are you putting on following him? What ultimatums are you giving Jesus? I'll follow you if my health is good. I'll follow you if my career flourishes. I'll follow you if my family holds together. You can keep going on. What's the if? What's the if for you? Is it one of those or is it something else? What is the if? I'll follow you, Jesus, if. That if is your condition. That if is your ultimatum. That if is your goal. That if is your God. Jesus is not interesting and interested in being a means towards your goal. He's the goal. 
Jesus is the goal. To follow him, the one who has come with this news, the king has come, to follow him, the right response is this forsaking all and the renouncing of self. Well, that then takes us to the second point. Uh, the dying, with the dying, comes living. With the dying comes the living. Other side of the negative is this positive. Now, we need to keep reading in Mark 8. Uh, we stopped in, there in uh, verse 34. going to pick up again in verse 34 and read a little further. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see, that the reason, the reason for the cost is the gain. The reason for the death is for life. The, the, the reason for the negative, the giving up, is for the positive, what we are given. Life. Life with our creator let me just think of it think of this 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 way with me for a second what does it mean to be married what does it mean to be married now there's different ways to answer this question but here's one way i wouldn't recommend it but here's here's one way you could describe the answer to the question what does it mean to be married it means well you're no longer single and you can't date anybody else well okay that's partly true and i hope for all of us who are married you understand that that is included but that's not all of it. That's meant for the sake of flourishing, a life of flourishing with another person. Right? It's the same here. In following Jesus, the, the dying is for the sake of living. The cost is for the sake of a greater gain. We need to have that in mind when we talk about the cost of discipleship. Jesus has, yes, that in mind for us, but with something else in view. Something beautiful, grand, amazing in, in view. And, and as we live that life out, and as we watch, just watch in Mark's gospel, or the others as well, the life and experience of the disciples as this time goes by, and then the early years of, of, of Acts, and the early years of the church, we see something, some things happening. We see that, that there are marks to this life, external signs and ways that this life bears itself out. There, there are four. It's there in, in your, your outline. I'm just going to share with them as I was thinking about it this past week. So what might th such a life look like, and what must it look like, by the way? What must it include? This, this following. It means listening. To follow Jesus means to listen to Jesus. He has your ear. To follow Jesus means to listen to Jesus. Many ways we could say that, but I'm just going to simply say by, by the teachings that we find in the scriptures. So the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, some of the, the teaching sections that, that we find, those larger te some of the places where he's speaking directly to those disciples, and, and it's so obvious what we need to hear, but other places where he's speaking to, 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 not to his followers, but to his opponents, and yet we still need to listen because there's things there that we can learn from. Following Jesus means listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus. 
Following Jesus means to learn from Jesus. Again, if you're his follower, his disciple, you're listening to him. You're learning from him. You're watching him. You know him to be your example, your model. He is the pattern of life as you see him. And he, 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 his chief desire was to do nothing more or nothing less than his father's will. So yours we know, mine, if we are his followers, his disciples, has to be a life of imitation. There's rich theology of that in the centuries of the church. A life of, of the imitation of, of Christ. So time, more time with him means we come to recognize that, oh my goodness, he's changing me. And to be ready for that. And some of the challenges that may come with that. As others are not so comfortable with the changes that they see taking place in your life. As you are learning from him, listening to him and learning from him. Which, by the way, has to also include this third thing, a leaning on him. Absolutely lean, because the longer we listen to him and the longer we learn from him, we also come to recognize our deep need of him. That is so absolute, in fact, is only superseded by his supply. Is only exhausted by his supply. So desperately do we need his wisdom for everything, his strength in in everything, in his supply. Oh, his supply. So back to the series we did some weeks ago in John's Gospel and the I am statements. Remember some of those? I am the bread. I am the light. I am the shepherd. I am the vine. What do every one of those imply? We come with nothing but need. And we find in him all that we need and more, and more. Following him means we are listening to him, learning from him, leaning upon him, and this last one, yes, it's another L. I want you to remember it. Lordship. Now this just it seems obvious, doesn't it? Because by definition, to follow someone means you come behind them. You're not in taking point. You're not in the lead. He is. Lordship means Following means lordship. Lordship means following. It stands to reason, and it can never be reversed. It can never be reversed. And there are some extraordinarily challenging implications here to know that Jesus must always be out front, and we are following him as our Lord. So his desires for us his desires for his church, his desires for this world must then be the pattern for our own if, in fact, he is Lord. In fact, he even taught us how to pray along these lines. Remember this? If you went to VBS, you heard it. <laughs> our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now here's the deal. That is not just something that we are to wait around for when he comes back. That's not, we are praying for that now. Just as surely as you keep reading through the prayer and you're praying for the daily bread, now. And you're praying for the forgiveness, now. It's all now. 
It's, we're not waiting for the future then. Our hope is cast on those things coming in full, yes, yes, the healing of all the divisions and the integration of all the disintegrations, yes, the things that we spoke of last week, the disease and the emptiness and the uh, broken relationships and the poverty and the injustice and the racism, all that is disintegrated being integrated, all that is wrong being made right, all the sad being made untrue, yes? Longing for the day when those things are superseded by oh, healing and flourishing and fullness and restoration and abundance and justice and peace. Our hope in that day, as we labor for those things in this day, because he is the king, he is the Lord, and we are following him. We are following him. Put it this way, in terms of imagery. Where are we on the map? Where are we on the timeline of the story? We are Robin Hood's merry men, causing Prince John a lot of headaches. We are the insurrection. We are the resistance. That's what our role is in this world as we wait for our king's full arrival in his return and the full establishment of his kingdom. Laying aside every one of our interests and whatever that would entail. Following him, listening, learning, leaning, lordship. We're going to spend some time in prayer uh, on this right now. If I could ask the people who are going to uh, lead us in the um, prayer of response, if you could go ahead and start coming on up now. Um, let me explain what we're doing here for the next few minutes. Um, so this is a fifth Sunday, and on these fifth 